I'm Jude. I'm Shepard. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lore is the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Jude, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Oh, uh, yes. Hi, I'm Jude. I guess I'll, I'll plug uh, two things. One is I work at this cool place. If you're ever in Santa Cruz, if you're passing through, uh, I work at this cool bike shop called Bike Church. It's a uh, non-profit uh, community tool collective. So if you uh, want to learn how to fix your own bicycle, you can, uh, you can come by and I will teach you how to fix your own bicycle. Also, I'm just going to plug myself. Hey, you can hire me. Check the show notes for my LinkedIn and my CV. Okay. And Shepard, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? I would like to plug audiobooks. They are perfect for when you run out of podcasts to listen to and you have to fill the void when you're getting from place to place. Oh my goodness, those are my favorite. I can plug an audiobook too. There's one I really <laughs> like. Uh, Go, do it. I listened to the uh, the audiobook for um, Watership Down, recorded by, um, I think it's Rafe Kosham. Um, it's really good. Uh, Watership Down is, it's really meant to be read to you. It's, it's, it's my favorite. Uh, I would like to plug, I also, my, my most recent audiobook experience was, uh, uh, a book by Carrie Alwes called As You Wish, which is about the, uh, the making of The Princess Bride. Um, and it has, it's, it's read by the author. Whenever a, a person is quoted in the book, very often, that quote will be read by that person. So it's very high production values. And it's just a really delightful story about um, how that film was made. I really recommend it. It's presumably also available in regular book form. I might as well plug the the book that inspired the plugging. Uh, I just started one called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion which I learned about from an episode of Freakonomics, like, last year, like, it's seven principles of how people are influenced. Are we, uh, are we ready to start on some topics? I am ready for some topics. Yes. Um, Jude, your topic is the attention schema model of consciousness. Yeah, so my, my dad bought me this book a while ago by a, uh, by a neuroscientist over at Princeton, I think, with his theory of what consciousness is, and he calls it the attention schema model. I'm going to try and try my best to summarize, summarize it. You can also, it has a Wikipedia page, so you can look, you can read there too. The idea is that our mind has models, we have mental models of things. And his theory is that consciousness is our own brain's mental model of our attention. Hmm. And I think it's really fascinating because the theory does a lot to like describe the ways that like our, our subjective experience of consciousness, which I think is really interesting. But it also, I feel like it hints kind of at what um, it might mean for a computer to be conscious which is uh, more worrisome to me. That's interesting. Can you elaborate on that? So like your attention is like what your brain is like paying attention to at a given moment. So you have a, um, a separate like mental model that is modeling what your own attention looks like. It's predicting what you're paying attention to. And so 
I'll just, I'm going to read the Wikipedia page because that will because I can read really easily, but being off the cuff in an interview is like a lot. If I could just ask, like I'm trying to understand what the 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 words mean, and if I'm understanding this correctly, which I'm sure I'm not, uh, what it is is you are what you think. So like. If if you think therefore you are, if you think about something else, you're you're not, or or like it's like peekaboo, or you're sudden suddenly you're that, so suddenly you're that. The other thing that you're thinking about, you pay attention to an apple, and then the the broccoli in the fridge no longer exists. Or oh gosh, yeah, so that's like kind of a different thing. I mean, yeah, like I said, I don't understand. Yeah, like, just like. The brain constructs a simplified model of the body to help monitor and control movements of the body. So, too, does the brain construct a simplified model of attention to help monitor and control attention. The information in that model, portraying an imperfect and simplified version of attention, leads the brain to conclude that it has a non-physical essence of awareness. The The construct of subjective awareness is the brain's efficient but imperfect model of its own attention yeah that's really interesting i like that that seems very plausible to me so the ego is the brain's proprioception of itself huh so what i was actually asking you to elaborate on specifically was uh what you said about um what that would mean for uh computer intelligence right yes this is a thing that comes up all the time where like we have the turing test and the Turing test is basically just can you trick a can you trick a human into thinking that a computer is also a human, which is T- turns out to not be that great a test. <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to go on a tangent here for a second. There was a um, an ongoing in practical application of the Turing test for many years. I don't know if it's still happening. The the Loebner Prize, run by Hal Loebner, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. The way this worked was that there were a, a number of human participants and a number of computer participants. Like the, a bunch of humans chatted with everybody and then rated each participant on on how likely it was to be a person. Uh, and there was one year when the winner by a, a landslide was just somebody – was a bot that all it did was it went through it, – it said uh, – and it, it ignored what you said to it and just said lines from a script about something that had just been in the news. And that was what it took to fool somebody. Like, it turns out the lay uh, computer user is not very good at knowing what a program talks like. Yeah, I personally believe the results are entirely dependent on how bored the human person is or how lonely they are. Like, right. That- and actually, yeah, that's a good point. In practice, if the purpose of a computer, of like an AI, is to be your friend, it's actually a really good thing that the bar is so low. Yeah. If if you think about it in terms of like making a computer so smart, you create a new happy person. Technically, you're making somebody else into a happy person. So you are succeeding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So bring it back to the attention schema. Like the reason why I the the implication for like artificial consciousness, I guess, is like, there's this evergreen question, what what does it mean for a machine to be conscious? And this gives, I guess, some kind of 
basis to like start like examining or constructing something like that, which is self-awareness, which is and a way to actually like talk about that and quantify it. Like, and I, I, that's not a thing that any version of a Turing test I've ever seen before actually like discusses is like a machine's actual like self-awareness. Is it able to perceive itself and like make predictions about itself? Yeah, that's interesting. So like right now, the model of machine learning is, I don't know what you call the, the, the modern shape of a neural network, but let's just call it a neural network because that's easier. You have this brain, let's call it a brain because that's even easier. <laughs> uh, that is, that has been trained on a data set and it takes inputs and it produces outputs. You could totally train a second brain to predict the kind of outputs that the first brain would make, but you could give it less resources so that it has to run uh, more efficiently or make guesses. And that would fit the model you're describing. But then I guess the, the difference is that, that that's a disconnected system. It's not, it is not then used as input to the original system. Yeah, right. There has to be the, uh, there has to be the feedback loop somehow. Right. You, right. you can be aware of your own attention. Right. And if the whatever algorithm the, um, the larger brain was using was able to make use of its own predictions, um, of, of the subbrain's predictions, that's hard enough to think about and complicated enough that it could totally sub in for consciousness in my mind. Yeah. Okay. I just thought of something that is either brilliant or absolutely nothing in terms of like if if you're mapping the idea of consciousness to the mental awareness being equal to the physical awareness then you could figure out how aware a robot would be of its limbs and try to give a computer the same awareness of its own thinking ability but if that's the case then they are currently equal because robots do not understand at all what it is they can do. Like they have to be explicitly told every single possible thing in order to do something at all. You know, you got a robotic arm that's as aware of its capabilities as a human is of their own arm. Like they, they would be way better at just doing stuff instead of having to be programmed with every single step and possible like uh exemption case uh but if you can do if if you could get to that level but apply that to the uh, a machine's thinking then that could approximate or reach consciousness yeah or you could just hire somebody <laughs> yeah that's what you should do that's <laughs> way like <laughs> have machine learning researchers heard about having kids <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, that's what, that's what, oh, nobody can hear you all. Oh, <laughs> 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 um, my partner, Olive, is, uh, is in the room listening. Does Olive have anything to plug? Olive, do you have anything to plug? My, um, girlfriend's really smart and good at math and has an engineering degree and we live in the Bay Area. Please hire her. Okay. Uh, nothing to plug for me. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> are, are we, are we ready for another topic? <laughs> are you ready? I think we are.
Shepard, your topic is studying a children's picture book in academia because it was successfully banned out of existence. So this was a few months ago, the very last class I had at community college was cultural identity in American literature. And so every week, like a bunch of paper printouts of readings of various books. And one of them was just the text of a picture book from the 1970s. Uh, and the book was X, A Child's Story, which is uh, just a uh, story of a child who is neither a boy nor a girl and about that kid going to school. And like initially all the school kids don't like them. And then eventually they become the most popular kid in school and whatever. And this was in the 1970s. And I tried looking for this book and it's not available on Amazon. And in the entirety of the New York's public library system, there is only one copy that is in the reference section. You're not allowed to like take it out of the library. It's literally the only one. And even uh, various book piracy websites, one might peruse, nobody had ever scanned it. Uh, and it's, it's crazy to think like, Basically, while we were discussing class, the professor was like, yeah, this was, you know, banned in like over 20 states. And when you actually read the book, it's just as banal as everybody poops, except like it's it it was completely erased out of existence. And it's it's so weird to read about this thing that could have been a huge cornerstone in the public consciousness. And it just uh, reversed. But uh, amazingly, the day after I uh, had actually gone to the one location that had one copy of this book, it suddenly started appearing in some book piracy websites by some miracle. Huh. I wonder how that happened. Yeah. And what's the name of this book? X, A Child's Story. So, like, the government has this experiment where they want to raise a child as neither a boy nor a girl, and they uh, test uh, thousands of parents to, to find parents that would raise it as, you know, equally like a boy and like a girl. And it's like this silly little, like, kid's book story, and uh, you can see the text of it online. But in terms of the actual picture book pictures that only exists illegally and it's like some like discount dystopian uh nightmare uh, of how it just doesn't seem to exist and it's inexplicable to me yeah 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 usually i don't know if you'd call that lost media but usually lost media is the result of just apathy of just it didn't find its audience. Uh, but the fact that it was banned in 20 states means somebody cared a lot about this book. Well, up until a couple of months ago, the pictures in the book was literally lost media. Right. And you couldn't see the drawings of the kids that inexplic inexplicably look like uh, like Charles Bronson. 
<laughs> I mean, one that's like fascinating to me because like any version, any like popular depiction of just like any any non-binary people in in any kind of American media, like it's so far, it's so hard to find anything going back. And anything you see is usually like seen as very transgressive. Yeah. I did look it up. It does have a Wikipedia page, at least, and it was originally published in Ms. Magazine um, as a short story. But um, that that like is also like interesting to me because there's like a lot of there's a lot of like old movies that we kind of consider to be classics now, almost which were for a long time like totally lost media, like uh, like Nosferatu. Nosferatu was like completely obliterated because it was violating like Bram Stoker's copyright. And so <laughs> they destroyed like almost every copy of it and it wasn't like rediscovered until later. Wow. And now it's a classic that like you can find everywhere. The pirates are the real heroes. <laughs> yeah. It's still happening with all the things uh, that... HBO Max is is throwing overboard a lot of things that only exist as crimes now. Oh, yeah. You know, like Infinity Train, one of the best cartoons of, of the past decade. Like, you literally can't pay any price for it. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious. Like, it's, it's hard to imagine that that stuff won't eventually land on its feet on some streaming service somewhere or maybe on Blu-ray. But it is totally possible that, like the rights will just get tangled up under red tape and just never see the light of day legally. And we'll just have to torrent it. I hate the consolidation of media into, like, what is it, like, six mega corporations. Yeah, it bothers me too. Recently, with all of the uh, streaming uh, services offering so many things, it almost made piracy, like, not a thing. Uh, that people yeah. are interested in, but now that they're like raising the prices and putting all of these like restrictions on what you can do, everybody's just learning how to like get a VPN and how to do all these things so they can just pirate it because everyone's like giving up and no one can afford to have like ten different streaming services. Um, yeah, I I I agree with that for sure. I was just lamenting recently about how today's kids don't know how to pirate. But I think they're going to learn. They're going to learn. <laughs> I think they're going to learn. And I think that if, I don't know, if huge corporations had, uh, if they could look forward more than four months, the smart move would have been to have uh, continued to provide a good service until Gen X died. And and then the, the understanding of how to pirate died with them. I mean, the the Digital Millennium Copyright Act wasn't passed until like... The in, until right before the uh, the first Zoomers were born, which is amazing. Like that, that everything in that is just like taken for granted now. Yeah, piracy wasn't a crime. <laughs> oh, I it, I think it was. I think it was just. Gosh, was it? That's so interesting. Like I I never really what 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 crime would it have been prosecuted prosecuted as? Oh, like. I actually have a little bit of uh, insider information that uh, as someone who knows somebody who works in intellectual property, it's just uh, a violation of the uh, master rights. Like someone who holds the copyright, like the ability to make master copies is a specific right 
that can be uh, sold or exchanged. And if you're just making your own uh, duplicates, that's technically a violation of the mass. It's it's the thing that makes the mega rich uh, recording artists like that way is that they have the master rights to their own music. Right. And like the 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 big change with uh, the DMCA is uh, the the breaking of DRM, regardless of uh, for what purpose or how easy it is. Like the breaking the shittiest little lock is an additional crime. The anti-circumvention thing is new. Yeah, it, it it didn't used to be a crime to break copy protection. Interesting. Yeah, I think I was too young when all that was ha- when all that was like happening to like understand the details. My basic impression was that just like sometime in the '90s, they just uh, lobbied together and made things like LimeWire and Napster illegal. Yeah, yeah. I think they were. It was more like uh, they were just trying to make even more laws to to make enforcing the laws that already existed easier. It seems to be coming to a close now. The modern era of everything you could want is just available streaming. I think that really only happened because piracy made it happen de facto and they were the the, the companies just had no choice but to be like, well, okay, how about if you pay us money to do the same thing? <laughs> And they made it slightly more convenient to do it legally than to do it illegally. I think I think it really only happened under threat of piracy. But yeah, like I, I don't know if anybody on the call was. I mean, I, other than me, I mean, was around when in Napster's heyday. But that was really a, a kind of an eye-opening moment of like what the internet could do for media. Like the idea that you could type in the name of a song or a band and be listening to it immediately was pretty amazing yeah i'm what some would call an elder millennial uh so i remember putting on a cassette to record a song off the radio so that i could have it later and then a couple years later learning to use limewire to download uh songs that are very misspelled and and or misattributed yeah 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 i don't know what this makes me but i remember downloading mp3s and then recording them to a cassette tape because it didn't have that much hard drive space and also this was like pre-napster so you had to like find the mp3s on ftp sites Mm. definitely the bad old days uh are we we ready for another topic ready yeah uh my topic is your favorite floor cocktail april and i we had just gone to a restaurant for our anniversary and it was on, on a rooftop. Uh, and on the way out, there was a, uh, we were taking the elevator down and there was just this pink cocktail sitting on the floor, just completely like as if someone had just prepared it. Like the, the ice was still, uh, the ice was still ice. And as we were talking to each other about it, the, the dude we were sharing an elevator with took notice and was like, okay, I'm going to take a sip. He picked it up and took a sip. And he said, who needs dignity when you have alcohol, is what he said. Uh, and then when we got to the ground floor, uh, he put it back down and said, leave some for the next girl, and then sauntered out. And that's my favorite floor cocktail. <laughs> Does anybody else on the call have a favorite floor cocktail? 
Okay, when I saw this on the list, I thought it was going to be what's your favorite cocktail for getting you blackout drunk and on the floor the fastest. But I'll accept that answer if you want, if you have one. I just assumed that it was like some kind of standard like bar phrase that I just didn't know. Like, sure. Like, oh yeah, what which one of the floor cocktails do you want? <laughs> I guess the other way to do it would be like they just pour it on the floor and give you a straw. Mm. Maybe it's like, like jungle juice, like but it's made with all of the stuff that ends up on the floor at the end of the night, and it's free. Mm. Oh, like like the uh, the the urn they spit into in the wine bar in the wine tasting. Exactly the forbidden jungle juice. Um, yes. I used to work in this uh, restaurant, and they would uh, pour all of the drinks into this bucket with, like, the ice and everything. So there'd be, like, mimosas and beer and liquor and coffee and soda and everything. And I always called it, like, uh, the Cafe Strudel Jungle Juice. I'm like, hey, is anyone going to get a cup of that? kind of looks good. And they're like, no, what the, what the fuck is wrong with you? They could do, like, a not gross version of that. Uh, maybe, like, all of the most popular drinks of the night. Just combine them. It's free at the end of the night. <laughs> I think it being gross is almost the point of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, but but also I think there's some joy in just combining a bunch of flavors together willy-nilly. A long time ago, back when my friends tended to be alcoholics, whenever a bottle of liquor was running low, they would just pour like the remaining half inch or whatever into the same bottle and it was labeled poison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It, it feels like that's the sort of thing that like, all right, then then like what you do is everybody puts money in a hat and whoever takes a drink if it gets the money or something like that. It feels like that sort of game would be how that would be handled. Like, as you were explaining this, uh, it, like a bunch of different explanations entered into my head. Like, that glass had to get there somehow. Like, either Bruce Wayne was there and then suddenly have, had to disappear quickly, so he left his yeah. drink there and forgot about oh, it. Oh, yeah. We, we never looked up to see if anybody was, like, doing the River Tam thing. Uh, on the on the top of the elevator, there were there were also no traces of a like a of a smoke bomb left. If the if the elevator smelled like a smoke bomb, that would have just explained everything. Mm. I've never checked the ceiling of the elevator to uh, to make sure there weren't any like uh, there weren't any spies up in there. But I've also I can't remember ever being in an elevator that was more than maybe eight feet tall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it could also be uh, maybe it's John McClane. Mm. Hiding on the hiding on the roof of the elevator, you have to like look up to see if the the I don't know what do you, what do you call the ceiling door of the elevator if it's slightly slightly tilted, yeah, slightly ajar. I'm, I'm for whatever reason I was just imagining it was operated like a manhole, like a drop ceiling, where there's there's a hole there's a the door comes out entirely and it if you put it right put it back sloppily it goes back sideways. You can find the. Uh ceiling cocktail up there yeah yeah really the only problem that i have with the the wine bar spit urn or whatever you want to call that is that people it was in people's mouths <laughs> like there's a there's a similar thing uh where coffee shops sometimes have like here's a receptacle where you can put your excess coffee if you need to make room for cream 
And why not just make that coffee available for cheap? Like, it's it's good coffee. It's not single origin, but that's okay. It's a blend. That seems like the kind of thing that, like, uh, like 200 years ago would have, would be like considered a, a, a social good that that's that's the that's the coffee that you give to the poor so you're doing charity yeah yep yeah you'd have homeless people lined up around the block for your for your coffee blend mm. and your floor cocktail or you'd uh pour it into the donation box at church <laughs> i'm just imagining tiny tim uh walking around very jittery on his crutch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's got a. We should start a tradition where we put tips in like the blue mailboxes for the mail carrier. It's like I'm just going to drop an ice cold beer in there so that when the uh, when the mail carrier comes by to pick up the load, it was oh here's I'm thankful f- thankful for all the work you do, mail carrier. Here's a beer. I feel like that's a. I feel like that would be a social good. I think my mom does that. But with like baked goods, <laughs> just a just a loose muffin. <laughs> yeah, if you put a cocktail in the mailbox, that's just a floor ca- cocktail of a smaller floor. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's that's uh, a floor of mail. <laughs> are we are we ready for another topic? I'm ready. Yeah. Uh, our, for this topic, we're going to be reading this poem, "Ode to Waluigi." Uh, would either of you like to read the poem or shall I? Actually, I would like to give context for this poem. Uh, the, the headline that I, I linked to here is student poet wins national award. A poem about a dastardly Nintendo villain has helped a local writer win a national writing contest. Sam Daly, a grade four student at Leo Nickerson elementary was named one of the nine winners of the 2012 book week writing contest. When I first clicked on this link, uh, I thought the picture of the article author was the kid that won the award. It was very <laughs> confused, but yeah, that's just me being weird. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's a that's a kid who should really shouldn't be called a kid anymore. <laughs> but looks uh, smart enough to uh, win an award. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how many awards Kevin Ma has won. All right, I, I'll, I'll read this. Ode to Waluigi by Sam Daly. O oh, purple-mustached, clever Waluigi, thou art such a genius when it, when it is thy time to attack Mario and Luigi. How thou attach springs to thy shoes, know I not. Why dost thou not have thy own video fame? Art thou enraged that thou dost not have one? Why dost thou fight the Mario brothers? Thou art negative and wicked when shooting fireballs at thy green, at thy green plumber, thy foe. Why art thou always cranky? Art thy purple knickers in a knot? Perchance Alvin Earthworm annoyed thou with his YouTube video. Why art thou so tall and slim? Perchance a, a power flower fell in your mouth when thou wast a baby. Why dost thou wear a purple suit? I like thy violet outfit for its unique hue. Shouldst thy brother Wario and thou fight so repeatedly? Is Bowser the Dragon Turtle your fiendish companion? I dost wonder what it wouldst be like to, to be friends with Bowser and thou. Dost thou own the vicious peaty piranha flower? Dost thou like the kind Princess Peach? If thou couldst own a Yoshi, wouldst thou? Thou art so sly and crafty, our slippery Waluigi. Dost thou fight Gino the Explorer dangerously? Why art thou not in Super Smash Brothers Brawl? 
Perchance thou art sad for being excluded from that rough game. Why art thou so nimble when thou escape the police? Thy symbol is an upside-down L. Oh, thou art sneaky, secretive, and tricky, mine own Waluigi. That's, that's the whole thing. I know it's hard to tell. This asks a lot of important questions. And we, get, we, we still have, don't have any answers. We still have no answers. I, I haven't played um, a Super Smash Brothers in a long time. Has he gotten to be in one yet? No, he's just the assist trophy. And like, so his biggest appearance, other than uh, being in the various sports titles, is he's a boss in the Mario Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> like, so like, I'm of two minds of this. Like, I I like Waluigi. I think there's a so there's a there there to explore more than than the occasional uh outings that gets to have. However, there is a phenomenon where a very minor character gets super popular in a fan base and then the creators go overboard uh adding in content and it's just too much. He's special because we don't actually know the answers to these questions. Yeah, I have no idea if he likes the kind Princess Peach, and if I did know, I would probably care a lot less. I also don't know what, like, a lot of the stuff in this poem is. Does anybody know who Alvin Earthworm and Gino the Explorer are? Oh, I know Gino. That's uh, from Super Mario RPG. Oh, didn't play that one. Okay, okay. But I think Alvin Earthworm is just a YouTube dude. I think this is just like... I'm going to name check my favorite YouTuber. So searching for Alvin Earthworm, it's uh, Alvin Earthworm is a member of Newgrounds who joined in September 2005. He's best known for his Flash animated series, Super Mario Brothers Z. Uh, let's see if we can figure out what that is. Super Mario Brothers Z takes place in the alternate continuity of the Mushroom Kingdom. Sonic and Shadow join forces with Mario and his friends in order to stop a threat known as Hyper Mecha Sonic. Okay, so this is like a... This is like a thriller <laughs> about, about about video games in general, I guess. Well, it's not like there's enough canon material to interlace in this poem. Like, you just gotta look at everything tangentially connected. He, he mentioned the upside-down L. You pull in all the facts you know about this character, and then the facts you don't know you have to ask about. And that's how you write an ode. Although strangely, I see no mention of tennis, which that that's the first game, uh, Mario Tennis, and like he was specifically invented for Mario Tennis. Right, right by Camelot. Waluigi was not a Nintendo creation, which is that's my theory for why you don't see him in more games. Is that the Nintendo? folks don't consider him to be really part of the Mario canon. I also am interested in like the uh in in Sam Daly's headspace, both a piranha flower, like even though it has a name and agency, it is something to be owned. And same thing with Yoshi. You own a flower and a Yoshi, but you you just like the peach. Well, if you did the things you do to a Yoshi 
to somebody who is an actual person instead of an object that that's a war crime like (laughs) yeah art thou on the run from the un (laughs) (laughs) people own pets that's a that's a thing people say yes i guess yoshi doesn't talk do you think that's the that's the bright line in the sand yeah i don't know i it's the the this is this like leads to like a greater like question about like the consciousness of cartoon characters in general um mm-hmm. this was addressed in that newer disney mickey mouse show where there was an episode where for some reason um pluto like couldn't be in the dog show so goofy took his place which just raises lots of like questions about the hierarchy of dogs in the uh disney canon yeah goofy and pluto just every time make something that you have to basically remove from your schema of attention or whatever that was Uh, otherwise you're just going to be thinking about it all day like is is pluto like mentally handicapped or does goofy have some sort of uh pet play fetish like there's a lot of possible (laughs) answers but none of them are you know appealing to think about i think the real answer is that they failed the turing test because they can't talk right yes if you just allowed anything that acts smart to pass the turing test you're just opening the floodgates for everything at that point you could let foreigners in <laughs> speaking of owning things according to the last line this kid owns waluigi so so the the whole cosmology of ownability is just up in the air if this kid needed to jump extra high would he be willing to sacrifice his waluigi yeah i'm sure i'm sure well because presumably like they're easy to come by right you just load up mario tennis you get another one there is like one major detail about this poem which has just been completely overlooked by all of us okay okay i'm ready this is the first line yeah waluigi does not have a purple mustache Uh, oh no oh no he wears purple and has a mustache but But it's hyphenated okay i'm looking at uh, a whole bunch of image search results here looking for any is there anyone where waluigi has a purple mustache and i haven't seen one maybe maybe the maybe the mustache is very dark purple or maybe this kid is like me and can't visualize and was just like oh yeah waluigi is associated with purple or maybe he's colorblind when you're colorblind black and purple look the same right i think my mom has that kind of color blindness um i think she has trouble distinguishing black and purple and this is something that always frustrated me in grade school was that you can't you can't do your research when you have like a desk assignment. Yeah, the when you're just sitting at a desk and they try to convince you that like you can't use your phone because you're not going to have your phone all the time in real life. So I even I searched for Waluigi purple mustache, still none of them have the purple mustache. I think if you could get one of those AI artist programs like dolly to make waluigi one one of them would give him a purple mustache because like the uh machine learning uh taught it that waluigi has purple and has a mustache 
So this must be what he looks like. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. I am typing it in right now, so um, I'll give you an update in up to two minutes. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, would you like to do another topic? I would. Yeah. Jude, your topic is, did generations used to be a thing? Yeah, uh, did they? I checked um, Wikipedia, and it lists eight generations, starting from World War One to the present day. There are eight named generations, and um, I just have never heard of somebody giving a name to a generation before, like, a hundred years ago. Did people just not distinguish generations before? Is this, like, really a modern phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, if I were to guess, I would say that before, you said World War One, Yeah. Or two? The uh, World War One. Um, the... Uh, right. What does it say? The uh, the lost generation. Right. Yeah. I would guess that if you go back far enough, which is probably not very far, there isn't really a broad enough culture for like a broad enough unified culture for that concept to really make sense. All right. What do we have here? We have your we have your Waluigi image here. Uh, it's a result from Crayon, where Cray is spelled C-R-A-I-Y-O-N and A-I is in orange. So that's the that's the branding there. That's a formerly Doll E Mini. Oh, did they stop calling it that because they got a cease and desist? Something like that, yeah. Su- surprisingly um, homogeneous um, array of images. Um, they are all in the same pose, in the same same background, facing the same direction. Yeah. So I would say some of some some of these. It's hard to pick out the mustache at all. Yeah, the very bottom right, the very bottom right, that's definitely, I mean, if you could call that a mustache, that's definitely a purple one. <laughs> I don't know if you can, though. Even the AI can barely produce a purple mustached Waluigi. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I All right, put, let's, get, let's get back to World War <laughs> World War One. Yeah, let's go back. Oh, one small uh, detour. I put in the exact same prompt into uh, Doll E. Uh, most of these are not even Waluigi. Uh, <laughs> he he, he kind of looks like somebody cosplaying as Waluigi, but no purple mustaches. Can you can you paste it in here so we can have a look? Yeah. Also, you heard it here first. Crayon is better at Waluigi than Dolly is. Dang. Mm. I feel like with generations, like this is this is like me making some uh, some kind of like unsubstantiable hypotheses here. Oh, that's a good <laughs> Waluigi. <laughs> I, like, wow. I like that guy. Oh, dang. okay. I, yeah, I, I do gotta stop and admire these guys. This is wow. This one has a tail. Yeah, I don't know if there's a way to share all four at once. So I'm just this is fine. Yeah, this last one it, it is adorable. Like, this is, is the most adorable thing I've seen, like, in the past week. Oh. <laughs> uh, and still, none of them have a purple mustache. So, so I pulled up on Wikipedia uh, the page on the Strauss-Howe Generational Theory, which was a book, um, which is a theory, I should say. It's the, the theories and books are not the same thing. Uh, put forth in, I think, 1990, uh, where they work real hard to um, apply the concept of generations and and try to derive meaning from it and like as it, and, and as if it has like a 
significant predictive power. Uh, and they have generations, for example, the Reformation generation was born between 1483 and 1511. And the reprisal generation was born between 1512 and 1540 and is of the nomad slash reactive archetype. And the Elizabethan generation was born between 1541 and 1565 and is of the hero archetype. I don't think any of these generation categories existed before how and Strauss put it forth. Yeah. And they almost would they have self-identified as being like distinct from the people born before and after them? Right. I, I don't know how to put myself in the mind of a, a peasant in the 16th century. Uh, so I, I feel like it would be um, presumptuous of me to try to do so. But my guess would be that they're not really even aware of the people outside of their own village. Like they, they're aware of like the people who are born and near them in time. Um, and the other thing, like one other thing about uh, American generations specifically is that uh, in American culture, it is the norm for kids to grow up segregated into ages where like you mostly hang out with people your age or just a year, a couple of years apart. Uh, and that's not normal throughout human history. Yeah. Or in our, our modern culture that gives that generation a lot of time to evolve its own, like, and, and, and coalesce its own specific culture that's specific to that generation. That was, like, totally, like, part of, like, kind of what prompted this, like, question for me is, like, the idea of, like, separating people into generations. Like, the idea of separating people into age cohorts, like, feels, like, very modern because... I don't think schools, I don't think education was structured that way, like, before the modern era. Right. It was more of like an apprenticeship type situation where, like, kids would be working alongside adults and the kids are, are, are teenagers probably, are learning how to do a craft by by working with people who know how to do the craft. Yeah. And also there's just like, especially just in the 20th century, they're just just kept being major world events separating all these like different generations. Right. There's like a small generational cohort between um, the greatest generation and the baby boomers, which are um, somewhat distinguished by not being part of one of the uh, major conflicts. The the silent generation. Yeah. Um, But everybody else just has like some humongous world changing event that uh, that was associated with their growing up. Right. I think Generation X is is kind of similar to that in that it's defined by it. You give it the name Generation X because there's nothing really interesting about this generation. That's true. Cold end of the Cold War, beginning of the Internet, but um, not really growing up in the Internet era. Right. I'm just thinking... Like, if Ming Dynasty boomers complain about their Qing Dynasty kids uh, not being, uh, you know, grateful for all the neat stuff they get to have, but not understanding that their Yuan Dynasty grandparents said the same thing about them. Like, I'm, I, I just happen to have a chart of different Chinese uh, time periods for a class I'm taking right now. So yeah, people being aware of their own uh, time period as being distinct other than just, you know, being 
is uh, sort of the latest thing. Yeah, and you look at like wars in the past, like the idea of the greatest generation, like really clearly distinguished themselves because they were involved in a in a war that was like how long was it? Like eight years. Sounds right. But but go going going further back, like wars would be. 30 years long or 100 years long like how long did the crusades go on that was like many generations of just like people being shipped off to the middle east like what what yeah yeah i think they went in waves but it went on for a long time yeah were they were they uh so i I don't know if like i i don't know how much like being part of a major conflict was like distinguishing people at that point like the violence was just continuous and normal. I think not being exposed to as as much constant warfare is what led to the greatest generation thinking that them experiencing it that made them the greatest of generations. Yeah. Don't know how good they have it. Are we ready for another topic? Totally. Yeah. Shepard, your topic is remembering what the mnemonic is, but not what it's supposed to remind you of. Okay, so recently I decided to try again learning Japanese again. But this time I'm doing better because there's this uh, app now uh, where you learn the kanji characters by coming up with mnemonics for remembering like what the symbol is supposed to mean as well as what it sounds like. And sometimes... It works perfectly. Like, uh, you've got a radical for fingers and radical for spoon. And you think that you have to sell the spoons or hawk them to pay for your trip to North Pole. So the symbol means north and the onyomi is hoku. And it's like, whenever the app asks me, you know, about that one, I got it. It's good. It's set. It works. But, like, sometimes I feel very crazy when I see something and I remember what the mnemonic is. You've got, you know, the uh, the king and he's wearing a hat. But what is that supposed to remind me? And then I'm just sitting there, like, feeling crazier. And then I look and, and it's supposed to remind me of all. And it's like, how, how is it supposed to remind me of that? But I remember the little bits that lead up to it like okay there's something white and it's being kicked and you're wearing a hat and you're supposed to remember that you're kicking the goose because you want to eat it therefore it means eat and it's like the the connection is like almost there and like at the time learning the mnemonic okay i can remember this when it comes time to to know the thing it, it everything comes back except for what it actually is is that any anything anyone else uh, experiences? I can't think of an example, but I'm just imagining like we've talked about the knuckle knuckle mnemonic on this show, where you can use you can you can look at your knuckles to figure out how many days each month has. Yeah, yeah, I use that one all the time. That one's great. I'm just imagining like. Uh, I'm I'm in a nursing home. My mind is gone, and all I'm doing is I'm just looking at my fists and thinking like this is important. <laughs> why do I re- 
<laughs> what, what am I trying to remember about this? Mm. <laughs> or like remembering the uh, for it, if someone's having a stroke, remembering fast, and yeah. then it's like, wait, what, what about fast? I'm supposed yeah. to do something fast, but what is it? <laughs> yeah. Yep. This is a different mnemonic thing, but I'm remembering being like eight years old and basic like music theory stuff. And there's like diminuendo, which is like when it gets quieter um, gradually. And that was always like diminuendo is always like pretty intuitive to me. Like it's it's it says dim. So obviously it's like getting quieter. Um, And. I had a piano teacher. I had like a string of them. I don't know why. It's possibly because I was like a little asshole or something like that. Um, but I had one piano teacher who um, told me that her mnemonic for remembering diminuendo was the men in the window and that she would imagine men in the window. And that's how she remembers diminuendo. And me being eight... Um, that did not make sense to me. That didn't tell me like how, how you're supposed how that was supposed to help you like remember what it means. Um, it wasn't until I remembered it like a couple weeks ago where it occurred to me that, um, that was probably supposed to help her remember the word diminuendo, which isn't English. Um, but I didn't think about that at the time. Yeah. 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 This is, I guess this is now a, a topic about, Things that you didn't understand as a child. <laughs> oh, that would fill up like so many hours if I was to go about the things that I did not and still don't understand. <laughs> I, I'm remembering when my grandfather, we were carrying in groceries and he came in last. And instead of coming in the door, he let the front door shut and then rang the doorbell. <laughs> Which is hilarious, but at the time, I was just like, why, why is Grandpa so weird? <laughs> I didn't figure out that this guy was hilarious until like a week before he died. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Kid, kids, kids don't understand clever humor, and I, it makes it very hard to relate to them. <laughs> okay. So for me... Like all the things, I can't tell the percentage of how many, it, it, how much it's because I was a little kid and how much specifically because I'm autistic. But like one time we were in a movie theater and I was a short kid. So my mom asked me if I could see the screen from where I was sitting. But what I thought that meant was could I see like anything on the screen? But, like, we were, like, there before the previews, so the screen was blank. So what I answered was no, but, like, if I understood, if I did understand the question, I would have said yes. But, like, so, so I'm, I can see a perfectly blank screen, screen, but my parents are trying to rearrange seats and we're running around so, so that I yeah. could see the nothing on the screen. Yeah, yeah, that's like uh, if you if a tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a sound. It's it's like, can you see the screen if there's nothing on it? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Growing up an undiagnosed autistic child, um, there's a lot of a lot of things 
where I had internalized a different meaning for words than uh, other people. And I mean, I guess that's, that's a child experience too. So that's so, yeah, I've had, had so many of, so many of those where like I had understood words to mean one thing and it's just like persisted as just a misunderstanding between me and all the grown-ups around me who just could not we could not understand each other yeah that sounds familiar so <laughs> i guess that's not an autistic thing i guess that's just a kid thing i bet there are degrees of it <laughs> yeah uh, okay this one this this, this this one's uh I'll, I'll just say it and you'll understand why I'm laughing so hard. But like, I was in the first grade and what I was told was to go to the bathroom before a test. But what I thought was I was to go into the bathroom and there would be some sort of proctored test in the bathroom. Mm. So I was waiting in the bathroom for the test to start and I didn't know what I was going to be tested on. Uh, yeah. I, okay. I was, I was worried you were going to sit here saying you peed your pants right before the test, mm. but your story is better. And that's all the time we have for topic Lords. Uh, Jude, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, well you mostly can't. Um, you can find me on the topic Lords discord. I'm on there. Um, I guess you could email me. What's 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 your LinkedIn? My LinkedIn. Um, I'll I'll put that in the show notes. I I'd have to look up the URL. Okay. All right, Shepard. If this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I would prefer not. Okay. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Yeah. This is nice. Hi. This is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!